0: Welcome to Bringing Truth to Life. My name is Henry Clay, and we hope you enjoy this series of messages on cultivating a heart for God. Well, tonight is our seventh and last talk in this series on cultivating your heart for Christ in our Easter series. And let's go over our catechism, what we've covered so far. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Let's say it two times. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And then we saw how the Lord can make us clean and clear away the rubble. Let's say that twice. Lord, you can make me clean. Lord, you can make me clean. And then we learned the law of sowing and reaping, that you reap what you sow, later than you sow and more than you sow. Let's say that twice. You reap what you sow, later than you sow, more than you sow. You reap what you sow, later than you sow, more than you sow. And I didn't have any catchy things for the next two that we did, but we talked about the spirit of the lowly, which was about humility, and then about binding up the brokenhearted and how God wants to heal your broken heart. So all these things, uh, sort of an eclectic mix of things, and you're wondering, how did I come up with these? And I wonder the same thing that what we're going to look at tonight is understanding God's grace in all its truth. Understanding God's grace in all its truth. There's a great challenge that we face in our lives, whether or not you're a Christian, but it also touches us as, as Christians, and it's the challenge of disappointment. Things just don't end up just the way you wanted them to. A few things maybe go better, but the things that go worse bum you out enough that you almost forget about the things that went well. You have to live as time goes on with your disappointment with other people, maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe your country, maybe your world. Second, disappointment with how your life ended up going. It just wasn't quite what you had thought it was going to be like, whether it be your health or your marriage or family or whatever, Uh, your job, Third, we have to deal with disappointment sometimes with God. When we've asked for things and thought for sure things were going to work out a certain way and we know he could have done it that way if he wanted to and he apparently didn't want to and that was a disappointment. And finally uh, the disappointment that you just face with yourself. That you weren't didn't end up being as good of a person as you'd always thought you were. Uh, you maybe at a certain moment of Weakness, uh, you went into something, you made a bad decision and you still sort of live with the consequences of of that and you're just kind of disappointed in yourself. And one key to persevering in the Christian life and bearing fruit is to come to a better understanding of God's grace because that's his main, our main weapon against disappointment is the grace of God. If you'd like to open your Bible to Colossians 1 verse 6, Colossians 1 verse 6, that's where I got the title from. Colossians is in the New Testament, and right in the midst of those that uh, are Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians—General Electric Power Company is the way I remember the uh, order of those. That's right after First uh, and Second Corinthians. Colossians one six says, "All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace." in all its truth, ever since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. That's the will of God for us, so it must be possible that we can grow to where we understand God's grace in our lives and all that it can do, otherwise you'll end up as just one more bitter person. Hebrews 2.15 says, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many you probably know some people that are bitter and it affects everything in their life. And you get around them and they're sort of like that uh, cartoon character that would walk around with a cloud, a dark cloud over his head and uh, just sort of be down in the dumps and anybody that they had contact with sort of ended up being down in the dumps too. That root of bitterness, that bitter root comes from missing the grace of God, from not seeing how God's grace relates to all of your life and even all the areas in which you've been disappointed in. And that bitter root can grow up, grow stronger and deeper and cause trouble and, and not just defile you, it says it will defile many. So it's very, very important to learn more about God's grace and to work hard to avoid having that root of bitterness. Well, what is grace? Some of these things I'm going to go through a little bit quickly because we're, for one, you've heard a lot about it, and two, we're trying to cover a lot of ground, and three, I can't continue next week because we'll be done. John 1.17 says that, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace came through Jesus Christ. Now, justice is getting what we deserve being sinners, the judgment we deserve. Mercy is not getting the condemnation that we do deserve. And grace is getting the good things that we don't deserve. Forgiveness, heaven, that's what grace is. It's a positive good going out to you. It's not just a withholding of the punishment that's due you. It's a positive action of God, gift of God, that He gives you uh, His favor. It's very frequent in the New Testament, about 122 times. In 18 of the 22 epistles, or or New Testament letters, the phrase grace to you appears. Sounds like a radio program I've heard of. Grace to you, that's probably why they picked that title. The essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us, not just with us. Uh, Because being sinners, that wouldn't necessarily be good. God is a, the Bible says, is a consuming fire. And I, I sort of conceive of it that, that sin makes us flammable. Sin is sort of like gasoline. And so if you're soaked with gasoline, what you don't want to get near to is a flame, is fire. And so here we are sinners and, and, and highly flammable and before a holy God. And it says, well, God is with you. Well, that's not necessarily good. I may be a sender. He says, well, not just God is with you. God is for you. And he has made provision And had you changed those gasoline-soaked clothes with Jesus, and he lit Jesus on fire. And so now you can come, and he can be near you and before you uh, and extend his grace to you. The last verse in the Bible also, Revelation 22, 21, says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. That's the very, very, very last words in the whole Bible. And what's he talking about? God's grace. So God wants you to come to the place where you understand His grace in all its truth. Now, when do we need grace? What do you need most before you come to Christ? You were born, and in sin your mother conceived you. And uh, what did you need most before your conversion? You needed to hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. You needed to hear about the grace of God, that even though you messed up, uh, God loved you and sent Christ to die for you. But what we often think, after conversion... What is the main need? Well, many have heard, well, it's to, it's to grow up in your faith, it's to be disciple. We need to get this person, uh, follow them up, teach them how to come to church, have a quiet time, tithe, and do all of these things. Discipleship, teach them how to be a disciple. But it's more and more clear as you look at the scripture that before you come to Christ, the main thing you need is grace. But also, after you come to Christ, the main thing you need is grace. Why is that? Galatians 3.3 3 talks about this. He says, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? He says, You started by grace through faith. That's how you need to continue. Why do I always need grace? It's because I will never be acceptable because of my works. It's not as though I come to Christ through faith in him, but now I better be a, be a good boy because if, if not, I'll, I'll lose it all. He says, no, it's always by grace through faith. Jack Miller said, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Isn't that good? You didn't just need the gospel back when you first asked Christ into your life. You need the gospel today, as though it were the only day, as though it were the the first day and the last day. Lord, I want you to be in my heart as my Savior and my Lord today. I have nothing to recommend to you, but my simple faith in Christ, that he loved me and gave his life for me. If you don't have that clear, then you are working on the disciplines and trying to behave yourself and all of this, and as one person said, discipline without desire is drudgery. And you kind of run out of gas, because uh, most people aren't always disciplined all the time, and if you are one of those few, you're probably the kind of person nobody can stand. So, I mean, it's not as though there's a really good solution to this thing, you know? Usually the person that's that consistent in that discipline can't understand what's the the rest of our problem. And uh, so they struggle with being critical of us. You need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. If you only take one phrase away, and that's not even a phrase, it's mine, it's somebody else's, but uh, take that phrase away with you. Say it with me twice. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Well, let's talk a little bit about the problems of legalism. Legalism is trying to, now that you're a Christian, establish your, God's favor toward you based on how well you're performing, how good you're being, how faithful you're being in the things you're supposed to be doing. That's why some people think when they are sick and in bed, oh no, now God's not going to be happy with me because I'm not very productive right now. What are the problems of legalism? First, it fosters pride and discouragement in my life. Why does it foster pride? Because I think I'm better than others because of what I do. I'm being faithful in this. I don't know what's the the matter with this other fellow, but they're just not doing anything, or they're doing the wrong things, and uh, I thank Thee, Lord, that I am not like that person. And the parable of the... Pharisee and the tax collector, I tend to, or perhaps I compare myself with others who seem to be less successful than I am, leading people to Christ, studying my Bible, whatever it might be, and that fosters pride, because I think, well, I'm, I'm at least doing better than that, that person over there, but it also fosters discouragement. Because I fail again and again to live a holy and blameless life. And if I think that my God loves me based on how well I'm doing, then I'll be up and down and up and down. Or I'll be discouraged because I compare myself with others who seem to be more successful than I am. You read yet one more missionary biography and you realize you really have a pitiful prayer life. And you read somebody else's biography and you realize on top of that, you're also not sharing your faith enough. And then you read somebody else's biography, and you end up with this hodgepodge. You've, you've sort of pasted together this monster that you're thinking, I have to evangelize like Bill Bright, and I have to pray like Hudson Taylor. And, and all of these different pieces, you know, that none of them were covered all of those bases. But you've heard about the ideal, the kind of an, out of each person's life that was the, the tops and that. And you'll never get off the floor because of your discouragement, comparing yourself with others who seem to be more successful than you are in certain areas. A second problem with legalism is, is that it's impossible anyway to make it by our works. Matthew five forty eight, Jesus, they say Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild and all, you know, love, love, love. Well, Jesus said in Matthew 5, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect hey, wait a minute, I thought he was the the God of the Old Testament that was kind of hard on people, and and Jesus just came to be nice. That doesn't sound very nice. If that's the standard, always, how can I possibly meet it? I can only meet it in Christ because he has already met it, and he lives in me, and God looks at me, if Jesus is in me, as though I were Jesus and had his record. That's what the grace, understanding the grace of God in truth is. James 2.10 also says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is doing pretty good. doesn't say that. It says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. How would you have liked to have that? Your teacher say that at the beginning. Everything is either a hundred or it's a zero. But that's the way God's law is broken in one point. It's all broken. That's why it's important to, to keep in mind God never evaluates me based on my performance but on what Christ has already done for me. Understanding the grace of God in all of its truth. Now, as we move along in this and understand that He died for us and grow in this, but where God wants us to be is this liberty, this freedom in Christ. I came that they might have life and have it in abundance. If therefore the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. But when people hear about, well, that Christ died and anything is all of your sins are covered it can tend to what we might call license our sensuality our pleasures pulls us toward well live it up have a good time that's all forgiven anyway isn't it god i love god's grace <laughs> but you see that brings you down into the realm of the flesh And it says the mind set on the flesh is enmity with God and your life begins to dry up. But there's another tendency to go the other way. Pride pulls you toward legalism because depending on how how closely you define the law, you can get a certain amount of satisfaction by feeling like you're doing pretty good and better than other people and you're sort of drawn over toward legalism. But that's also manifestation of the flesh. Some of these things will be kind of like seeds of thought that may germinate later. So we'll just cover it, and I'm just trusting that whatever the Lord had for you, you'll get out of it. And if there's anything I was just confusing you with, it'll just uh, fall away. Well, let's see, let's go through it bit by bit. The one who's in, uh, in in license is a slave of lusts and pride. I'm sure what I'm doing is okay with God. The the legalist is a slave of law and guilt because he's watching everything so closely it's also easy to start feeling bad about himself. But he wants us to be in the middle, uh, under the law of liberty, to be a slave of Christ, the person of Jesus Christ, not the laws, not our lusts. As far as our conscience, uh, the person living in license is self-excusing. I don't see anything wrong with what I'm doing. The person who's a legalist is self-accusing, because they are paying attention to the law, so they see it more when they mess up. And the person who's in liberty is at peace with God. As far as acceptance, the person who's uh, living according to his lusts says, I'm okay, you're okay. In the end of Romans it says, not only do they practice these things, but they also say that anybody else that wants to do it, there's no, no problem at all. Calling evil good. And the legalist says, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. None of us are okay. But uh, the one who's in their freedom in Christ and in the grace of God says, I'm not okay, but I'm accepted in Him, and that's okay. As far as the focus, the person in uh, uh, living according to their lusts and license, uh, their focus is on their pleasures. The legalist, their focus is on the prohibitions. Don't do this. Don't do that. And the focus of the one who who has freedom in Christ is the person of Jesus himself. As far as the body, the physical body, the person who is focusing on living it up on license says, if it feels good, do it. The person who's a legalist says, if it feels good, don't do it. And the person who has their freedom in Christ, as far as the body goes, says, do whatever God says. The body is a holy temple. The symptoms of someone who is in license is that they run out of gas. They just get empty. They do all the things that, that, according to their pleasures, would make them happy, and they're just not as happy as they thought they'd be. They're empty, and they're running because there's a guilty conscience back there if they ever let it catch up with them. The legalist just feels already guilty, and they're also running because they're trying to accomplish all these things, Get, you know, touch all the bases every time that they're supposed to do it, and it's also uh, just a kind of a rat race. The symptoms of being on that hill of grace in the middle, on, in, in liberty, is the sense of feeling full and of resting and responding to the Lord, because your focus is Him. It's not on the rules, and it's not on your pleasures or your lusts. Where does the person in license get this idea from? Well, it's a wrong idea of what love is. He says, well, uh, God's a loving God, so I'm sure anything I want to do is fine with him. Where does the legalist get their idea of what they're doing? Well, it's a a misunderstanding of of God's justice and how it can be attained. It can be attained only through Christ. But on that hill of grace, there's a, a beautiful marriage of both love and justice. It's a just love and a loving justice. The results for the person living in license is they're just unfulfilled. For the legalist, they're exhausted because they're just trying to do all of these things. But for the person in the middle, in, the, in, in liberty in Christ, there is energy without slavery and there is satisfaction without sensuality. How do they view themselves? The person in license has views himself with pride, I'm glad, I'm, at least I'm not a hypocrite. I know I live it up, but at least I'm not like those hypocrites over at the church. The legalist says also in pride, I'm glad I'm not like the wicked. But the person in, at Liberty in Christ says, I'm just a trophy of God's grace. And then as far as scriptures that are pretty much dedicated to those three areas, 1 Corinthians deals a whole lot with license, Galatians deals a whole lot with legalism, and Ephesians is a beautiful picture all the way through the book of what does it mean to live out God's grace in your life. That was a lot, wasn't it? Oh well. I want to illustrate it now with uh, the parable of the of the prodigal son. That's, we're not going to go back over the whole story, but you'll at least remember the story that a man had two sons. An older, a younger, the younger asks for his share of the inheritance. This is in Luke 15. A few days later, leaves, spends it all in what the Bible calls loose living, fill in the blanks, and then gets um, to be rock bottom, hit bottom, and is miserable and decides, well, maybe it wasn't so bad at dad's place and maybe he'll make a place for me if I go back. So he goes back, the father receives him, sees him at a distance, runs out and hugs him. Uh, the son stumbles through his little prepared speech and says, well, I'm really not, you know, maybe, you know, and the dad just doesn't pay, pay any attention to hugging him, making arrangements for the party and everything. And, and But the, somebody doesn't come to the party, it's the older brother. He's all bummed out that the father has so easily forgiven this younger son. And so the father goes out and tries to explain to him, well, uh, it's not as though they're gonna redivide the inheritance. That's one important thing to to realize. The father had already taken all of his inheritance Divided it however they divided it and given whatever was the portion for the younger son to him He spent it all comes back. He receives him back, but he still didn't have any inheritance left sin always has consequences Maybe on a lark as a child you chop off your finger And then you repent and say, go to your parents and go to God and say, I am so sorry, I chopped off my finger last week, I buried it, you know, and didn't tell anybody, so we can't sew it back on. And and, uh, will you forgive me? Yes. Well, can I have my finger back? Well, if you'd have wanted your finger, you shouldn't have chopped it off in the first place. It's gone. There are things in your life, decisions you've made that God has, that were wrong, that God has forgiven you for, but there are ongoing consequences. You reap what you sow, later than you sow, more than you sow. But that's okay. God can also redeem that and use that for good ends because maybe there's somebody else who cut off their finger and they will feel particularly loved and ministered to by you because you will be a trophy of God's grace And even somebody who chopped off their finger, there is a place in the Father's house for Him. So let's compare these sons a little bit. The prodigal son was younger. The, I'm going to call the other one the proper son. Just uh, looking for a, alliteration there, a P. But he was the son that stayed home. The younger, the, the prodigal son was foolish. The proper son was, by comparison, wise. The prodigal son was wayward. The proper son was obedient. The prodigal son wasted his inheritance. The proper son saved his inheritance. The prodigal son left home in rebellion. The other stayed home in submission. The prodigal son perhaps was thinking, my father's not fun. I want to go have fun. The proper son afterwards was thinking, my father's not fair. He shouldn't have taken back this younger son. And Jesus in Luke 15 is using the prodigal son as a picture of the sinners that he's ministering to. And the proper son, the Pharisees were supposed to figure out, he's talking about us when he's talking about the older brother that didn't want that younger son restored. Now, when the prodigal returned, let's compare him a little bit. The prodigal pled with the father. The proper son, the older son, the father pled with him. The prodigal, by this time, was upset with himself. He says, I've really blown it. The older brother was upset with his brother and his father. He wasn't mad at himself. He hadn't done anything wrong. His brother had blown it, and now to add insult to injury, the father was forgiving him and having a party on top of it. The younger son, the prodigal, said, I am not worthy to be called your son. What was the older son's complaint to the father? I deserve better treatment than this. The younger son was reconciled in the end of the story. The older brother, it doesn't say, it leaves it hanging. It's like the whole parable ends with dot, dot, dot. And you wonder, I wonder what happened. He was facing a choice. Was he gonna drop his guard, accept his father's reasoning on it and go in and embrace his brother? Or was he going to plant a root of bitterness and stay outside? The prodigal son ended up broken and humbled the older son unbroken and proud. The younger son, the prodigal, ended up scarred but close to the father. The older son was unscarred but distant from the father. You never see the father embrace the older son. The prodigal was humble because of his failures. The older son was proud because of his accomplishments. The prodigal son was most aware of his own failures The older son was most aware of others' failures. Now, I don't know if you've been able to tell so far, but we're following very closely those two categories we already set up of license and legalism. Of, on the one hand, the the kind of person that has lived for their lusts and their pleasures, and the other hand, the person that's tried to stay home and be good and behave themselves. But we see there are other uh, results that come from each of their choices. The prodigal ends up being hard on himself. The older son is hard on others. The prodigal starts off on the outside, but by the end of the story, he's on the inside at the party. The older son starts out the story, most of the, half the story, he's on the inside. But by the end of the story, he's on the outside and won't go in. Now let's bring this home and let's meditate a minute on who are you? Are you the prodigal? Or are you the proper one? Are you the good boy or the bad boy? Are you the good girl or the bad girl? The truth is, you're a combination. I wonder how, when you think about your life, what kind of proportion you would give it. Maybe you're like that top one there where the prodigal is very, very large and the proper is kind of small. You think, well, if I honestly evaluate my life, I I wouldn't get a very good grade. I've had sort of a rebellious streak, situations where I was supposed to be in submission. I don't think I did a very good job. There were a number of indiscretions in my youth. There might have been uh, problems with the marriage, things uh, that you didn't feel went right with your children. And, and but, but because of, of being a, a kind of rebellious, this isn't just a, a whoops sort of a thing, the prodigal leapt into sin. It wasn't a mistake. He says, I am going to have a good time. And in seeking for heaven on earth, he lived out a true hell on earth. And maybe that's what your life, a lot of it, looked like. But, now you have a little bit at least, there's something, nobody can, can possibly do everything wrong. You have done some things right, and you feel pretty good about those, it might not, might not be much. But you've done something right. But the other so overshadows it because it was so much or the things that happened were so big, the blunders were so big, that what predominates, perhaps in your case, is the prodigal side. But maybe you're like the lower drawing here where the proper side is the bigger side. Yes, maybe, maybe one time in your teenage years you answered back to your dad, but just once, And ever since that day, you have been a model, good boy or good girl. You've always been in church. You've always believed in God. Yes, there were these small little things. I I remember one of my crimes as a six-year-old in the Episcopal church. uh, When it came to this time of year, Lent, they would give us a little box. And uh, it was like a little bank. There was a little slot at the top, and it was called a mite box. I don't think I knew at the time what a mite was. It's the widow's mite. And we were supposed to collect money uh, during Lent and then turn it in and it would be given to the poor. So being the creative entrepreneur that I was, I snuck around and clipped flowers out of everybody's gardens and then went around, not very clever, selling them door to door until somebody said, "Um, those flowers look familiar and I, Did not have nerves of steel, dropped everything and ran off and hid behind the bushes for about two hours, sure that the police were after me. So I don't know how big your prodigal part is, but it could be like you're more like the second case where you basically view yourself uh, like that older brother in the sense of you pretty much did what you were supposed to do, what was expected of you. So let's take a look at that now. What, what, what characterizes that? Looking for the prodigal son in you. Let's just suppose you're a little bit more of the prodigal one. In fact, you've wondered sometimes, I wonder why they let me in here, it's probably because they don't know my record. And you've been wayward, let's go down that left list. You feel like your life has kind of been a failure in some ways. In a sense, you've wasted your inheritance. There were were things that God gave you and you used those to sin against Him. God gave you your sexuality and maybe uh, you sinned against God and a child was lost. Maybe God gave you uh, the possibility of of being married and through different blunders it was lost. And and that marriage can never be recovered. Maybe it was uh, money that you spent on drugs or alcohol and the time and the money Inheritance that God had given you to use and invest and bless people with, it was like you just flushed it down the toilet. You wasted the, your inheritance. On the other side, maybe if you've always been good, trying to do what's right, you've always been believing, you're more like the older brother. And maybe that's more of a picture instead of a hopeless rebellion of the prodigal son. It could be that it's more the Sometimes it's taken the form of loveless religion. You've been religious, but you've also felt sometimes distant from God and sort of frustrated, empty. You've been obedient. In a sense, your life has been a success. You've saved your inheritance. You haven't wasted it. You stayed with God in submission, whereas that prodigal left God in rebellion. But by the end of the story that we looked at, we noticed that the prodigal is the one that ended up reconciled and the proper son, unreconciled in the end. Now your prodigal part, the prodigal part of your life is the part that you're ashamed of. That's the part you don't like telling people much about. Maybe sometimes you'll you'll drop your guard and if it's appropriate you'll share that, but but you're kind of ashamed of some of those things. And if that's a large part of your life, there's a lot of shame there. And you tend to be hard on yourself. You struggle with thoughts of, I'm terrible. I'm really a bad person. And what you most need is to understand the mercy and the grace of God. That's how you'll get up that hill, up to the hill of grace. But if you're the one that's pretty much done what you're supposed to do, uh, and that that more characterizes your life, you're more the proper son, well, that refers to the part of your life that you're kind of proud of. Feel pretty good about that. I didn't miss a day of Sunday school last year. I uh, really gave a lot to chapter 3. You know, the, the, it's the things that you feel good about, which is not bad in itself, but because of that focus on performance, tend to be hard on others and struggle with the thinking, well, I'm a pretty good person. I've got up here I'm great you know you you know enough about legalism to know you just don't say that in fact you don't even think it so you say well I'm a pretty good person you know you say you tone it down because that's also part of being a good person you don't toot your own horn you've got it down man. you even even to the point of of knowing how to fake humility you're good at it and what this person if this predominates in their life, what they need to understand is more of the justice of God. That it's just not that easy to be good. And that what we call good, the only reason why we have such a high opinion of it, is because we're just comparing ourselves with other people that are doing worse than us. Anybody that's doing better than us, we, we discount them because they're just kind of weird, you know. I'm a normal person and, and all these other people, except for a couple of odd exceptions, You're worse than me, so I'm I'm feeling pretty good about myself. One time, a car zoomed by my father, and we were driving, and he says, hot rodder, and I I asked him, I says, is a hot rodder anybody going faster than you? And he says, yeah, I guess it is. Pretty honest. So what's the need if you're more like the prodigal son? If you're more aware of your failures than of your successes, what do you need? You need Calvary. That's what's going to help you to understand the grace of God. The death of Christ on the cross. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You need a new understanding of God's mercy. Psalm 51 is written for that, pers- that kind of a person who struggles so often and so frequently of thinking, I'm, I'm a bad person. Uh, I don't deserve God's grace. You need to be bathed and healed by His grace. Luke 15, 7 in this in the parable of the prodigal son, says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. God is glad you are here if you feel like that prodigal one. The further away you went, the more of your inheritance that you wasted. It seems like the gladder he is to have you come back through that door back there. Say, welcome home. Come to my arms. You don't need to feel like you're second class because, well, all these other people've been here a long time and they know all the Bible and by heart and they know how to pray and and uh, they probably led people to Christ. And I barely got here myself. And so I'll kind of sit in the back. He says, No, no, no. We got the front row reserved for you. You're the one who will most quickly understand what God's love means for you. That says the person we have the more troubles with is that good boy and that good girl. Why? They don't realize how badly they need the grace of God. And they're so upset that that person can just walk in here and get forgiven and, and God loves them so much and has a party for them. He says, well, I've been here all my life and you haven't given me a party. Why, aren't, why didn't the angels sing for me? And the older brother syndrome, what is their need in order to get onto that hill of grace? They need Sinai. They need the law of God. They need to understand uh, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus says if you just think in your mind a lustful thought, that's like committing a sin of adultery. If you're just angry with someone, that's like the sin of murder. The only reason you can feel good about yourself by doing the law is if you water down the law. You need a deeper understanding of God's righteousness. Psalm 73 is written for that kind of a person, but we can't go into that now. But God takes him through a process where he starts off in the psalm all mad because he just doesn't think God's being fair. And finally he gets to the end of the psalm and he says, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee I desire nothing on earth. And the older brother syndrome can be healed by being examined and humbled by God's law. Isaiah 64, 6 says, All of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The word filthy rags is menstruation rags. That's awful. I mean, you don't even want to say it. He says, that's, and that's the best you can offer. You, put, you, you get all, together all the best you've got of your service to God and your Bible memory and your evangelism and your giving. Put it all together, wrap it up and God says that rates about at the level of filthy rags. Is that the best you've got? (laughs) Yeah, that was the best I had. You should see the stuff I left at home. He says, I want you to realize how much you need God's grace. How much you need it. Now, with these two examples. He's given us a range. You notice in other parables He'll give you a range. Mary and Martha, what was that a range of? What was, what was kind of being dealt with with the, the story about Mary and Martha and Mary, Mary sitting at His feet? Okay, no time to sit at Jesus' feet. The area of devotion, you know, sir, between the, the tension between service and devotion. How about, uh, where does He talk about a range of ability? That's when he talks about little children. You need to become like little children. The range of status, the rich man and Lazarus. Someone real high, someone real low. And then at the end of it, they're flip-flops. So a lot of times Jesus will use that kind of a contrast. But here we have the contrast between the prodigal son and the proper son. And I just wonder where you feel like you are tonight. Who are you? I and mean, what is it that keeps you from understanding the grace of God in all of its truth? Because you see, if you're more like the prodigal, you have a certain prescription that we're giving you tonight. A certain direction that you will need to go to get up on that hill of grace to where you feel completely free, full, fulfilled, loved, blessed. And then you can just, uh, you're just so loving to others and you're so satisfied and content that you never had when you were living for your pleasures. But I also want us to realize that there, there are other people that have really tried to behave themselves. And that is wonderful. That's good. That's not bad. It wasn't, we shouldn't think of the older son. Oh, he was this awful person. No, he was just a normal person. The younger son might have been the same way if he'd have stayed home. It's not that. All have sinned. We're just creative and we sin in different ways. But that's part of the problem of having a clean record is that just like that older brother, you can kind of be hard on other people. And you don't extend to them grace because you haven't really received it. You haven't really needed it. Oh, maybe a little bit. You know, when you're stealing flowers to put money in your mite box. But nothing big, you know. So where are you tonight? Are you discouraged and downcast because of a life of failure, a wasted inheritance? I want you to know tonight he's glad to see you. The angels rejoice over you. It's easier for God to help you than it is to help those that never had a big detour in their life. So even if you will weep over the things that were lost, that can never be recovered. You can rejoice in the Father's love and know it's, it's all going to be okay. In a million years, we're going to pretty much have forgotten all of your failures. But on the other hand, if you're more the good boy, the good girl syndrome, and you find yourself constantly comparing, competing, critical, complaining, not much love, perhaps a root of bitterness, perhaps a thinking the father is not fair, not much praise. Remember, by the end of the story, the older brother didn't make it into the arms of the father. I wonder tonight, will you? I was struck by a quote by William Carey. Does anyone know who William Carey was? Missionary. He is known as the father of modern missions. What country did he go to? The Orient. The Orient. He went to India. Translated the Bible into—I won't say how many languages because I'm sure I'm just guessing—and it'll be recorded, and then they'll say, "Aha, you got that one wrong." So I'm just not going to say. But it was—it was—it uh, was more than seven. A wonderful man of God, planting the church, translating the Bible, served the Lord on the mission field. For decades and decades, maybe as much as 50 years. And I have a quote from his 70th birthday. And he said, Today is my 70th birthday, a monument to divine mercy and goodness. Even though as I look over my life, I find so much for which I should be humbled to the dust. My outright sins are innumerable. My negligence in the Lord's work has been great. I have not promoted his cause, nor sought his glory and honor like I should have. And all that notwithstanding, I have been spared until today, and I am still permitted to labor for him. And I trust that one day he will receive me in Christ." Now there's somebody who has understood the grace of God in all its truth. You first need to understand Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the law of God that leads you to realize how badly you need a Savior. Then you receive Calvary, the cross, the forgiveness, being washed and cleansed by the blood. And finally, as you grow in understanding it, you're on that hill of grace, fully receiving and basking in the Father's love, knowing that nothing you can do bad will make Him love you any less. And nothing that you can do good can possibly make Him love you any more because He already loves you as He loves His own Son. And because you are so loved by Him, You're so released to love others and to bring them into the kingdom no matter what their crimes against heaven or earth have been and say the Father's arms are outstretched toward you in love. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. So we are finishing now our series on cultivating the heart. And if we could only pick one thing out of all the seven weeks we've had, take this one home with you. How much we need to grow in God's grace, to preach the gospel to ourselves every day so the law won't crush us and so we can be a channel of His love to a broken world. Stand to your feet and we'll close with prayer. Lord, will we ever understand that grace? How can it be understood? But we can receive it and admire it and apply it in our hearts and extend it to others. I pray for those tonight particularly that feel like the prodigal son. They've cried so many tears and felt so bad so many times. And on top of that, they come into God's house and they feel even more dirty and far off. And I pray that they would learn to run to your embrace and know that you're glad to see them and that you can heal their broken hearts and clear away all the rubble and make them a trophy of your grace. And I also pray tonight for the one who's more like the older brother. They have the benefit of having a heritage. They haven't wasted their inheritance. And there's so many good things. The scripture stored up in their minds and perhaps a solid family, a solid life, and we give you thanks for those things. Those are wonderful things, Lord. But we also pray that they, too, would understand the grace of God and truth, and if they find that negative spirit growing in them, the criticalness, the competitiveness, that bitter root springing up, I pray that they would find you, Lord, tonight, both on Sinai and then on Calvary, and they would also understand God's grace and all of its truth, and be able to love that prodigal when he comes through the door. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on Bringing Truth to Life. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a review. This helps more people find our podcast.